Well, D.L. Moody is quoted as saying, Our greatest fear should not be of failure, but of succeeding at something that doesn't really matter. This idea, no doubt, has broad implications for the total sum of everyone's life. It would, and likely does, make a fine adage below senior yearbook photos, or appear as a meaningful and thoughtful quote adorning email signatures. But this morning, however, I want this quote to have us all appreciate Moody's precise meaning. You see, D.L. Moody was a Christian and a prolific evangelist. And in this quote, he was talking to Christians. He wasn't simply giving some general good life advice. No, he was being incredibly specific about how we as Christians should consider what it is that we focus upon. What it is that we strive to succeed at. What is it then that Moody was pointing to? Two words, making disciples. Brothers and sisters, what a shame it would be if we gave ourselves to things that don't really matter. I don't want that for me, and I don't want that for you. So let's do this. Let's ask God to use the preach word this morning to shape us such that we give ourselves to the task that Lord Jesus would have us give ourselves to, the task that D.L. Moody gave himself to, making disciples. We're going to read together one text, Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. You can find this on page 835 of the Blue Bibles in front of you. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to where Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Well, this is the Great Commission. And you can summarize it in two words. Make disciples. It sounds so simple. But as we look at this command this morning, I think that we will see that it is easy to stray from it. So what is our responsibility here? How is it we do this? How do we make disciples? What is evangelism anyway? Well, J. Max Stiles' book on evangelism gives us a helpful definition. He writes that evangelism is proclaiming the gospel with the aim to persuade. In 2016, I was very new here. God's providence had led my wife and I through the doors here at Redeeming Grace Church, 
And while we were investigating the things of the Lord, we were yet far, far off from being Christians. In fact, that wouldn't be true of either of us, especially me, until after several months of sitting under the preaching of the gospel and mostly through the intentional interactions of some men sitting in the congregation this morning. Men like Dean Gagnon, Martin Lundberg, and Tim Ebers. You see, these men didn't dance around any issues with me. They didn't just share a gospel of nice. No, they aimed their influence into my life by inviting me to home group and our Friday night's men's ministry here at called Men's 416. But most importantly, they shared with me the gospel of Jesus Christ. These men shared with me the truth that we all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Sin came into the world in Adam, and ever since Adam, we have borne the curse of a just and holy, righteous God. But they gave me good news. Even though the payment we all deserve for our sins is death, God had instituted a plan for salvation beginning all the way back when Adam had first sinned. Even while we were still his enemies, God determined to send his son, Jesus, to save us from our sins. Jesus took on humanity, and he came to earth, and he lived a perfect, sinless life. And then he died on the cross so that we could have eternal life in heaven with him. God's plan stretching all the way back to the Garden of Eden is a free gift of grace given to all who repent of their sins and put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. The men I mentioned here at RGC, they made it clear to me the depth of my sin. They persuaded me to stop looking to myself as the solution to the biggest problems and start seeing myself and the sin that characterized my life as the biggest problem that I had. They showed me the desperation of my situation and extended to me the only way to salvation, God's redeeming grace available through faith in Jesus Christ. By sharing the gospel with aim to persuade through their evangelism, they made me a disciple. Mission accomplished. Or was it? Does the mission stop there? Is the command that Christ gave to lead people to Christ only to slap them on the back and say, best of luck to you, kid. I'll see you on the other side. Spoiler alert, it isn't. It starts with leading people to Christ, but it also includes building people up in Christ. That's what we commonly refer to as discipleship. You see, we're not just aiming for decisions or people saying, I believe in Jesus. We're aiming for disciples. And what is a disciple? It's someone who follows Jesus. This is what Jesus wants, right? He says it himself in the Great Commission. Take a look again. Right after he tells us to go and make disciples, he tells us what they are. He says, find people as you go and baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. 
Well, if you've spent any time here at RGC at all, you likely know what we believe about baptism. Baptism is the immersion of a believer into water in the name of a triune God. It's an outward sign of an inward reality. It publicly identifies someone as a Christian, a banner bearer of Jesus Christ, who in unity with him has died to sin and risen in newness of life. It's about a person who says, I love Jesus and I don't care who knows about it. And so they live their life characterized by that love. That's a believer. Someone who comes to know what God has done for them in Jesus Christ. Well, next you'll see in Matthew 28 that he calls us to teach these baptized believers to observe all that he had commanded. We are commanded to build people up in Christ. And I think it's an important distinction in this command. You'll notice it's not to teach them everything so that once they know everything, then they can finally be a follower. That's not it at all. No, he says they are taught so that they observe all that Jesus has commanded of his disciples. You see, there isn't some sum of knowledge that you must obtain first. Being a disciple is not solely an academic endeavor. Another thing you'll notice about how we do things here at RGC, if you spend any time here at all, is that we believe in sound doctrine, in studying and learning theology. But we don't focus on these things simply to fill heads with knowledge. We focus on these things so that we know God more and so that we ever more look like Christ. And so here at RGC, we don't try and produce in people information, but transformation. We want to see people transformed by the gospel and the knowledge of God through his word. Okay, so we have a working clinical definition We have proclaiming the gospel with the aid to persuade. We want to lead people to Christ and then build them up in Christ. And we can see clearly from the passage we read in Matthew that doing so is a command given by Christ. On that, there should be no doubt. In BJ's 2018 Resolve series on being on mission, he used the analogy of Christ in this passage as giving orders, much like a military commander. As an army man, I can get behind this. I know following orders. I've followed many. But no military leader, however, could ever hold a candle to the leadership that we find in our Savior. First, to state the obvious, none of my military leaders have ever had quite the same authority. Jesus provided his credentials here in Matthew 28 that would put every commissioned West Point grad to shame. He said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Secondly, our Savior, he leads by example. So let's actually look at an example of how this is done. All while trusting that we can follow the command of a leader who himself spent time in the trenches. I chose John chapter 4 this morning to help us teach about the reaching ministry of Jesus. Do you want to see evangelism in action? 
Here it is. And it is an amazing story. Now, I'm going to give you a little bit of an overview. I won't be reading verse by verse, but if you want to check it out, read John chapter 4, verses 1 through 45 this afternoon. Let me start with setting some context for us. Jesus, while traveling to his hometown, makes and stop what culturally would have been the wrong side of the tracks, a place called Samaria. He's wearied from travel, and yet he intentionally camps out at a well midday. As Christ is purposefully sitting there, he watches as a woman approaches the well. It's midday, remember, and it's the Middle East. It's hot. No one does physical labor during the day. But this woman is. She's coming to get water. Now, if you've never heard this story before, let me give you some background on this woman of Samaria. She's a Samaritan. Jesus, a Jew. Culturally, these two people, they don't interact. Maybe you've heard of the parable of the Good Samaritan from Luke chapter 10. When asked, who is my neighbor? Christ tells a parable about a Jewish traveler who's beaten and left half dead alongside the road, who's avoided by both a Jewish priest and then a Levite, but finally, a Samaritan happens upon the traveler. Although Samaritans are Jews and were generally opposed towards each other, The Samaritan helps the injured man. Okay, so that's who this woman is. She's a Samaritan. But not only that, we're soon going to learn that this woman is in a sinful relationship with a man that isn't even her husband. In the midst of all the reasons why you wouldn't expect them to interact, Christ meets her right there. And more. He intentionally engages with her. He asks her for a drink. It's clear right away that she's a bit hesitant to engage with Christ. What are you doing talking to me? I'm a woman and a Samaritan and we just don't mix. But Jesus isn't going to give up on her. He says to her, if you knew who was asking you for a drink of water, you'd be asking me and I'd give you living water springing up to eternal life. Well, this confounds her. Inquisitively, she asks, where do you get this living water? It's true, she didn't fully understand. Spiritual things to the non-believer often don't make sense, not until God opens ears to hear. But she hears enough. Who would want to make this trek out of town in the sweltering heat and come to this well in the middle of every day to get water? And so if this man has water to offer that springs to eternal life and that satisfies... Well, this creates a little bit of interest. She says, sir, give me this water. And then what does Jesus do? Like a surgeon, he pulls out the scalpel and he cuts right away to the crux of her problem. He says, go, call your husband. Now remember, she's not married and she's in a sinful relationship. (laughs) We just got personal here, didn't we? When someone starts pushing on sin bruises in our lives, when they get personal, when the gospel starts to show us the core of our problem, it can be offensive, can it? Now, Jesus doesn't take joy in exposing her sinfulness, and nor do we in others, but he knows, and we should too, that until you see the depth of your need, you won't want a savior. You've got to see yourself as a sinner before you can know you need a savior. savior. 
She brushes him off saying, I don't have a husband. Jesus responds, you're right. You don't have a husband. You've had five. And the one you're with right now, he's not your husband. This sort of exposure of sin can often deeply offend. And so we see, as we might often do, when our own sin is exposed, she changes the subject. Let's stop talking about my personal life. Let's talk about abstract spirituality. But Jesus doesn't let that go. He says to her that there is salvation coming. And that the time is now when true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. He says to her that this isn't about man seeking God. It's about God seeking man. Here he proclaims to her the good news of the gospel. And in her last attempt to ride the way, she throws out a last ditch. Who can know? Again, like she's shrugging him off saying, one day Messiah will show up and we'll, we'll know everything, right? And what did Jesus do? He looks at her and he says, I am he. And just like that, God opens her eyes. She's seen the depth of her sin. She's been coming to that well day in and day out to satisfy her earthly needs, yet nothing has ever brought her satisfaction here on earth. She has never been satisfied. But in this moment, she's learned of a fountain of living waters. And she's found satisfaction. Her sin has been made abundantly clear And yet she's been shown a savior who came for her. A quick word to those of you who are here today who haven't accepted God's free gift of grace. If you don't know the gospel that I've described as truth, if you aren't a Christian, someone who is living their life as a banner bearer of Jesus Christ, having been baptized as a symbol of this to the world, give me your attention for just One moment. We are all sinners. We all deserve to go to hell. I am a sinner. This is what I deserve. But just like Jesus came to earth for this Samaritan woman, Jesus came to earth for me and gave himself up on the cross so that I could have an eternal relationship with God the Father and with Jesus Christ. And Christ tells us that whoever comes to him He will never cast out. Would you consider this call this morning? Maybe you're not sure how. Well, Romans 10, 9 and 10 explains it simply. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from our unrighteousness. So you admit that you're a sinner and you believe that Christ died on the cross for your sins. Confess these things to him and ask him to save you from your sins. And then turn in faith and repentance and follow him. It truly is that simple. And God is not slow to fulfill his promise. He's not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is both willing and he is able. Come. See a man who knew all that you ever did and still came for you. Well, the woman at the well did. 
In turn, she immediately wanted to tell people about Jesus. Here we see the start of a disciple. And what is she doing? Well, she's following him. I think this passage is a beautiful representation of what evangelism looks like. Christ, like the command he will later give, as he was going to his hometown, he met this woman and he was so intentional with her. This wasn't just casual first century water cooler chat. He wasn't just being nice and building a relationship. No, he made it personal. She wasn't looking for Jesus, but Jesus left glory looking for her. I think that's all of our stories. We weren't looking for Jesus, but he came looking for us. And he likely did that in most of us through an evangelistic encounter. Somehow, through someone sharing with us the gospel. Well, why don't we engage in this work of making disciples? Well, number one, first and foremost, I think sometimes we just don't understand the assignment. Remember how those dear men poured into my life and invited me to Men's 416 back before I was a Christian? I'll never forget BJ's own invitation to me back then, excitingly telling me what the Men's 416 ministry was all about and encouraging me to come with questions about that night's subject, election. Well, having never heard that word outside the context of democratic politics, and given that it was in fact a presidential election year, I immediately assumed that I had been just invited to some sort of Christian political rally. Having been challenged to bring questions and being a bit of a non-politico myself, I came home from that Sunday and I flung myself into studying and researching the presidential candidates. <laughs> I boned up on their po- platforms and their policy bents, and over that week I prepared a litany of questions so that I could engage with what I thought was a group of men who were rallying on a Friday night to talk politics. Well, Friday night came, and let's just say about one minute in, my mind was blown. We were, of course, not coming together to talk politics, but to talk about salvation in Jesus Christ. How God, in free mercy, chooses to save particular sinners whom he loved before the foundation of the world. And I remember walking away from that night thinking that in more ways than one, I had misunderstood the assignment. I succeeded in something that didn't even matter, and I had been clueless on something of eternal significance. Do you want to reach the end of your life and look back and realize that you spent most of your life focusing on things of little to no internal importance and forgetting to take seriously your great commission, having never really put much effort into making disciples? Brothers and sisters, I think we put a whole lot of energy and effort into things that just missed the mark. I think sometimes we have the propensity to put an abundant amount of emphasis out. We can be the most loving and kind with non-believers and fellow Christians, but we miss the fact that the most kind and loving thing we could ever do for them is to share the gospel and to build them up in Christ. Number two, along those same lines, I must admit, sometimes I don't even see people like I should. Don't mean that there's anything wrong with my vision. My eyes perceive people around me all the time. As I wait in line at the grocery store, or as I work with them, or coach kids sports with them, 
Or even when I sit in the very seats you find you're sitting this morning, right now at church. I'm wondering if you can relate to simply not seeing people. And if so, I think there's one of two things at play. First, regarding unbelievers. Maybe you acknowledge that there's an unbeliever in your midst, but you have no real brokenheartedness knowing that this person is a soul, a being made in the image of God. Maybe it's true for you like it is for me that it's just not on your heart as much as it should that this person is lost just like I once was. And just like I once was, they're eternally destined for a life apart from God. Second, regarding fellow believers, do you just acknowledge the presence of that person sitting to the left or to the right of you while failing to see them as a fellow member of the very body of Christ that you are called to help grow so that we are all built up in love? Do you maybe save those feelings only for the people that you connect with easily? Isn't it true that whether you think you have everything in common or nothing in common at all, you have Christ in common. And we are members of the same church. And because of that, you have a role to play in pouring into their lives and helping them along in attaining the stature of the fullness of Christ. Brothers and sisters, I would challenge you this morning to consider that these people that we interact with and move amongst daily are not some non-playable characters in the background of the video games of our lives. God's word tells us that faith comes from hearing the message of the gospel. And the message is heard through the word about Christ. Can we be bold enough to speak that into their lives? And number three, maybe the reason we don't do this is that we think evangelism is saved for a certain few. My dear wife has employed a term that I think she would now, after some eight years of Christian fully lament her original meaning. Early in our walk with the Lord, she would see the amazing evangelism and discipleship of some of the dear sisters here at RGC, and in her adoration and self-deprecation, she would say of those women, they, they are the Christian-y Christians. They're so bold. They're so faithful. They can do so much kingdom work, but that will just never be me. Please don't misunderstand me here. I fully acknowledge that we may not all have the spiritual gift of evangelism. I get that. But you must know that we are all commanded by Christ to make disciples. It's not only meant for a select few. In fact, Christ's command here is intended to produce a great chain of self-replicating followers. He calls his disciples to make disciples, who then in turn are called to make disciples. We can't be a follower who isn't in the game of making followers. That's just not the message of a Christian. You being actively engaged in the work of making disciples for Jesus, that is God's good plan for you. And while the list of why we don't engage in this work could make for a lengthy sermon here today, there are seemingly endless reasons that we can devise to excuse ourselves from this command. But what I would rather do is turn now and give you some encouragement and exhortation on how we can all strive to excel 
in something that matters. How to make progress in evangelism and discipleship. How do we do it? How do we make progress? Well, we strive to grow spiritually ourselves. We build others up, and we ourselves are built up in Christ. I know baked into my wife's Christian-y Christian idea was this nagging thought that, man, I would love to be pouring into the lives of others and sharing the gospel, but I just lack the boldness, and I just don't have the tools. I have fear of man, and I'm not as sharp theologically as others. I just don't know what to say. If that's a thought you've ever had, I would encourage you this morning to think instead about how to change that. First, boldness can come in so many ways. Maybe you are lacking the boldness to share the gospel with that coworker. But are you bold enough to pray for them diligently, even corporately, publicly, here with us, so that they would come to know Christ? Or pray even for your own boldness diligently that God would use you someday, somehow, to be part of that. Would you be bold enough to invite your non-Christian friends to church? (laughs) That is one surefire way that you can get the gospel presented to them. Because without fail, it is presented and taught from this pulpit every Sunday morning. Bring them with you so that they can hear it too. And take steps and plan to do this. If you fail to plan to do something, you are planning to not do it. If you fail to make plans for how to engage in evangelism, you are planning to not engage in evangelism. Give it a try. And maybe like, maybe you, like my wife, will find after a while that you too can be used by the Lord in other lives like she's been. Now on to tools. Let me ask you some questions. Did you fully take the opportunity to compose your testimony during Brad's core seminar series? If it's a tool that you are seeking, I can tell you that there are few more useful tools than your own story of how God was at work in your life. If you put a little effort into building the tool, reach out for help if you need it. You can, sh- you can have a tool that will help you share your story with others. It's not too late. The audio of that series is still on the website. And let me ask you, are you coming to our men's and women's retreat this year? Each one of these is designed to help you grow spiritually and support you with sound doctrine. Have you heard about our theology conference this year? It's on heaven and how if we had a better grasp of it, how it would more fully engulf our lives here on earth. Talk about fuel for evangelism. Please come. You want a basic crash course on sharing the gospel? Come serve in our Awana ministry. The years I spent teaching three and four-year-olds the gospel were as beneficial to me as they were exhausting. But in all seriousness, if you can learn to explain the gospel to kiddos, I promise it will build tools for a lifetime sharing the gospel with non-believing adults. It might be true that you're lacking tools for effectiveness in these areas, but praise God for a church who wishes to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. 
Well, if you must admit that you've also found yourself thinking that you're too ill-equipped for this work, ask yourself just a few more of these questions. There are evangelistic Bible studies going on all over the place. Would you be willing to ask to sit in on one and see how another brother or sister goes about them? Talk to one of the pastors to see who you could team up with. In this work, practice really does make progress, but you do have to engage in it. And playing wingman to someone else's lead is a great way to get in reps, helping others understand the gospel. Also, ask yourself if there's some other ways that you can support the sharing of the gospel, even if it isn't you sharing it directly. Pro tip, introduce your non-Christian friends to your Christian friends. Or encourage your Christian friends to introduce their non-Christian friends to you. These opportunities give you an ally in the evangelism. And right off the bat, it shows your non-Christian friend that the Christian life is one of community and unity. Non-Christians will notice that our relationships are deeper and meaningful because of our changed hearts and shared love of God. (coughs) That's a powerful witness. Another way to support the work of making disciples is financially. And maybe in ways that you're not expecting me to talk about this morning. Let me tell you, it's great to have a budgeting app. But please don't let that hamstring you from taking opportunities for evangelism and discipleship. Think about ways you can bless other families here with hospitality to foster pathways to conversations where you can pour into their lives and build them up in Christ. Great conversations about where we are spiritually can happen over a meal right after church. And well, if your house looks anything like my house when I left this morning, maybe it's not people ready. But there are countless diners and restaurants open right now that will do all the food service so that through you, God can do the spiritual service. Obviously, hospitality, whether in your home or at a restaurant, can cost a little money. I know that. But dear ones, many of you have a little money that you could spend in this way. You can bless a family both practically and spiritually by providing them with lunch and then intentionally pouring the gospel into their lives. And lastly this morning, I cannot preach on being missional without talking about global missions and our role in them. While D.L. Moody's quote I opened us up with is applicable for all of us, I understand that we're not all called to live a life like his, traveling far from home in Christ's service and full-time mission work. But, but maybe, might some of us be called to a live a life like his? Might some of us be called to such work? Maybe God is calling you in whatever season you're in into the missionary field. And I got a quick word specifically to the young people listening this morning. Has the idea of a life devoted to seeing God's kingdom grown, has that factored into your thoughts for the future? You know, there are millions of people, whole people groups, that have no access to the gospel. No one proclaiming it to them. Might it be your life's task to carry it to them? Is a life spent bringing the gospel of Christ to people who have never heard it, even a category you're willing to entertain? Wouldn't it be worth it to live a life like that for Jesus' sake? A well-lived but hard and challenging life, chock full of meaning, laboring every day so that people in remote corners of the earth 
can hear the message of Jesus and live and be brought into his kingdom. What I can say to everyone is that God has you where you are in the season you're in for just as a time as this. So while none of us, I'm sorry, while not all of us are able to travel globally, he does have ways to have our financial support and prayers help carry the message of the gospel to every corner of the globe. That's why we as a church partner with missions organizations and individuals to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ. That's why we support people like Harshit Singh at Satyavachan Church in Uttar Pradesh, India, and to Derek Bass's work at Tyndale Theological Seminary in Amsterdam. We thank God for these partnerships and are committed to providing long-term support to each of them so that we can see the unreached reached, churches planted or revitalized, and theological training provided globally. Consider how you can contribute to that. Well, what happens when we share the gospel with the aim to persuade and when we build and are built up in Christ? We see God change lives. Look at the woman at the well. She changed. How do we know she changed? Because you can see the transformation. She leaves her water pot running away from the solitude. She goes into a town and says to anyone who can listen to her, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Christ has a way of doing this. When he enters into our lives, he's got a way of reorienting our priorities. He changes the very mission of our lives. When we share the gospel, we say souls saved and Christians sanctified. We see God's kingdom built here on earth. Oh, Christians, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Join in on this harvest. And we will see his church unified in purpose and love. And Christians, Christ tells us that we are not left to ourselves in this mission. No, Christ tells us, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We can trust that he will empower and strengthen us to persevere in this work. To make disciples, all while knowing that Christ is with us in this as we go. This was true then, this is true today, and it'll be true forevermore. I want you to think back upon the chain of history we talked about this morning, from original sin in the Garden of Eden to God's plan of redemption culminating in Christ. From his reaching ministry we saw play out before us at the well in Samaria to his death, burial, and resurrection. Think about the great commission we read that he gave to the disciples before ascending into heaven. And now I want you to think forward. From Pentecost, when the gospel was shared by men following Christ's command, empowered by the Holy Spirit, in a multitude of tongues, and the gospel spread from Jerusalem to Judea and into the uttermost parts of the earth. This message was spreading as people went and they shared the good news with others. And then those who received it in turn shared it with another. And onward and onward, spreading the gospel across the globe, across centuries, until one day it landed in your ears. Someone came to you and shared the gospel with you. You heard the truth 
And God opened your ears and changed your heart from one of stone to one of flesh. And since that time, think about the other believers faithfully following their command to build you up in Christ. Think about that chain of history, one after another of faithful Christians fulfilling the command of their loving Savior. And now ask yourself, will you too join in on that chain? Will you obey the words of Christ and make disciples? So that the gospel will traverse across even more places and even more time until Christ returns and ultimately every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for coming from glory to save sinners. As we go, empower us to live out the Great Commission in our daily lives. May our actions and words reflect your love, and may we be bold in sharing the good news with others. Guide us, Lord, as we strive to make disciples and fulfill your command. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.